Whitley Strieber is a phenomenon, a kind of religious prodigy without a religion who cannot help engaging classic religious questions and themes, since that is what his experiences clearly invoke. The last lines of the preceding chapter voice these perennial religious questions perfectly. He seeks an objective answer to the hemming question of what we are, where we are, and why we are here. Obviously, the emphasis is on that we, that is, on our own human nature, or supernature. The human-centered focus of the inquiry speaks volumes. What Whitley really seems to want is not a new religion, but a new science. One that can take extreme religious experiences, such as out-of-body, near-death experiences, precognitions, moments of clairvoyance, and visions of the dead as privileged data about the deepest nature of mind or consciousness, which is to say, about what we are, where we are, and why we're here. I think he's right about that. I've said as much as many times in very public places. We are not anti-science, quite the contrary. We simply want a science that is honest and brave enough to take in all that human beings experience without immediately explaining all away that, all, and everything by some easy pat answer that is really no answer at all. The Harvard psychologist and philosopher William James had a wonderful expression for such a future science. He dreamed of a radical empiricism, that is, one that took every human experience, however strange or apparently impossible, under its careful gaze without prejudice or assumption. This book is an attempt to practice just such a radical empiricism. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. Happy Solstice and happy Strawberry Moon. It's Monday, June 20th, 2016, and today we are again communing with one of our favorite guests to explore the thrilling analysis of why the paranormal is real, but radically different from what is conventionally understood. Rather than merely documenting the anomalous, Dr. Jeffrey Kripal and Whitley Strieber deliver a fast-paced and exhilarating study of why the supernatural is neither fantasy nor fiction, but a vital and authentic aspect of life, and they do so in their latest co-authored work, The Supernatural. Two words, published earlier this year by Tarcher Perigy. And their suggestion? The extraordinary exists if we know where to look and how to think about it. All kinds of impossible things from extra-dimensional beings, by location, and bumps in the night are not impossible at all. Rather, they are part of our natural world. But this natural world is immeasurably more weird, more wonderful, and probably more populated than we have so far imagined with our current categories and cultures, which really make these things seem impossible. The supernatural considers that the natural world is actually a supernatural world, and all we have to do to see this is change the lenses through which we are looking at it and the languages through which we are presently limiting it. Thankfully for us, today's guest will help us with our optics. Dr. Jeffrey J. Kripal holds the J. Newton Razor Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University, where he chaired the Department of Religion for eight years and helped create the GEM program, a doctoral concentration in the study of Gnosticism, Esotericism, and Mysticism that is the largest program of its kind in the world. He is also the Associate Director of the Center for Theory and Research at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California. 
He's the author of seven books, including Comparing Religions, Mutants and Mystics, and Authors of the Impossible. He specializes in the comparative study and analysis of extreme religious states from the ancient world to today. His full body of work can be seen at his website, kripal.rice.edu. It's always a pleasure to have him on the show. How are you doing today, Jeff? I'm well, Doug. Thanks for having me on again. You bet. This book is wonderful. I'm curious. I know that you have interacted with a lot of interesting folks. Um, did this book grow out of one of your previous books? Uh, yes, it did, actually. It grew very organically out of the Mutants and Mystics book. The last chapter of Mutants and Mystics is a, a chapter study of Whitley Strieber's um, visitor corpus, his, his nonfiction books on his own experiences of the visitors. And it was really that um, that chapter in that book that, that uh, got me in touch with Strieber and over the last five years, so Mutants came out in 11, over the last five years, um, I had invited Whitley to a number of conferences and he had invited me to a number of events and we sort of just became friends and colleagues and um, decided oh, about two years ago now to try to write a book together. And uh, this book's a, a product of that. And then my curiosity is Whitley has a kind of pop culture recognition and fame that an academic might not necessarily be privy to. I wonder, how does this book do in comparison to some of your other books? Well, the, the truth is, is that none of my books have sold like hotcakes. I mean, the, these are not trade books. These are academic books largely, and the audience is fairly small, not tiny, but small. Uh, and this book is, it's, it's too early actually to tell, but it's, it's doing okay. Again, it's not selling like, hot, like hotcakes, but it's, it's selling, um, uh, very consistently. Um, but of course, you know, you always hope for that, but as a writer, you never expect that. So, uh, <laughs> what I expected, <laughs> I, I tell people, I say, you know, uh, Writing books in this area, particularly writing academic books, it's it's a lot like throwing a Kleenex off the Grand Canyon. It's just nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you expect uh, fireworks in the sky or a parade or something, and uh, instead the Kleenex just gets caught on a limb or a bird takes it for a nest or something. So it's I'm I'm sorry I'm used to the disappointment by now. Well, I'm wondering about what I – the other things is the books uniquely kind of grow out of each other is my experience with them. But I wonder – Yeah, yeah, they do. If – what kind of legs they have because that's the other thing. It doesn't seem like they're, they're moments in time. They definitely deal with something that needs to be dealt with, and so there's a lot of density in each of them. Well, that's my hope. So – Listen, I, you know, largely what I do is read other writers and study their work and figure out how they've influenced culture and, and history over sometimes large expanses of time. So I'm very, very aware that a lot of writers are really writing for a future they'll never personally see. Um, 
and that's very much how I think about writing. I, I think about it as I'm writing for some future self or some future community that that doesn't really exist yet, but that books like this can plant a seed for. So, you know, it's really an act of hope um, when a writer publishes a book because he or she relinquishes really all control over how that book is received or not received and just sort of surrenders it to to the future reception histories. Um, and that takes an act of faith, really, and hope that, um, you know, good ideas will eventually win out and bad ideas will eventually uh, disappear. But that that's a hope. That's not a certainty. <laughs> well, that leads kind of to a curiosity, but before I get there, could you just give the listeners a, a, a thumbnail background on who Whitley Struber is and and why he's an important subject for a, a book like this. Well, so Whitley is a, um, a, a well-known uh, science fiction and horror writer. Uh, he's been writing horror fiction and science fiction since the, the 70s, if not before. Uh, he grew up in San Antonio, Texas, uh, which is another kind of nice connection we share, a kind of Texas connection. Um, and um, he is most famous in many circles for a nonfiction book he wrote in 1987, came out early in 87, called Communion, in which he recounts in significant detail uh, a series of what most people would call abduction experiences. Uh, and his... His writing skill, between his writing skills or gifts and his uh, honesty and kind of self-reflexivity, the communion book uh, uh, became a bestseller and had a significant impact on how people think about the abduction experience and, and the mythology of the alien in particular, even though he avoids that language. So as someone who studies these kinds of experiences in the past, I thought it would be extremely helpful to get up close and personal to such an experiencer in the present. But there's kind of a simplistic thought that if we can figure out how this works in the present, we might have a better grasp of how it worked in the past and so how it generated basic religious ideas and notions like, you know, God's coming from the sky, as it were, uh, which is essentially what an alien is today. Um, so that, that's sort of the genesis of the book and, and who Whitley is. Um, but of course, the book, as you know, alternates back and forth. Um, I write the introduction, and then Whitley jumps in with his account, um, and then I respond to him, and then he responds to me. And it's not exactly a direct response, but we're sort of talking to one another, with one another. Sometimes I think, you know, around one another, but but we're still engaging in a, a conversation with the basic idea that the conversation around these things sort of gotten stalled in a set of unnecessary binaries or oppositions. And we think there's a kind of third way through the impasse and we try to we try to perform that third way in the book. Yeah. And so what's interesting is Whitley's experiences are out of this world. They're wild. 
and as I read them, I just think, oh my gosh, I, you know, <laughs> I don't even know what to deal with them. But then you, in the next chapter, says, I've never experienced this. I've I've never seen a blue alien come running through my room. I've never seen a ghost. But at right. the same time, you take what he's saying not as fiction, but as something that he really experienced, and then try to make sense of it. Right. I mean, so the basic method, I was trained in the comparative study religion, and we're trained to think uh, fairly and comparatively about any kind of religious experience. And the first method we're taught is something called the phenomenological cut or, or bracket. And essentially what that means is we're taught to bracket our own views about the world and how the world works and to enter into the descriptions of the people we're studying to try to figure out how their religious experiences worked and, and how they, they were expressions of their time and place and, and what they might mean. Um, it's rather like, as I say in the book, it's like suspending your belief when you enter a movie theater to watch a film, say a science fiction film or, or something like that. I mean, you, to enjoy the film, to understand the, the film at all, you have to you have to put your the outside world, the hot parking lot beside, uh, outside, and you have to enter into that world. And that's essentially what we do in the study of religion. It doesn't mean we believe any of it, but we we enter it in, a, in an initial attempt to understand it. And my argument or my conversation with Willie is essentially he's been practicing this all along. Willie's a, a, a brilliant man, and he just intuitively practices a lot of the things we're trained to do in in PhD programs. He's never never been in those programs, but he just intuitively gets it. And so essentially what I'm doing in this book is teasing out the basic methods that Whitley's already using in his books and giving them names from from the humanities and the social sciences and, and just showing how he himself is practicing this cut. He himself is suspicious of believing the literal visions that he's seeing. He's describing what he's seeing. He's describing what he's experiencing. That doesn't mean he believes the content or believes the vision or the the, the uh, display itself. In fact, he, he suspects that the display is not the full truth. Um, and so that's that's essentially where our conversation goes. That's an interesting distinction you're making. So he's saying... I don't know what is real, but this is what I experienced. Didn't he popularize the whole idea of the the anal probe? Was that something that came out of his body of work? Well, he certainly didn't popularize it. Uh, other people popularized it as a way of making fun of him. Sure, but I mean, he's he, the one who introduced the idea of it. Well, he described his initial abduction experience, which involved uh, an anal probe, and which involved... Uh, physical damage and uh, suspicions of some kind of crime or, or rape, actually. And uh, he described that because that's what happened. Um, it doesn't mean that what he saw is exactly what happened, but he experienced some kind of anal rape during his first abduction experience, and he was brave enough um, to describe it and not look away. And, you know, he suffered for almost 30 years now 
for that honesty. Yeah. Uh, um, and that's, that's the kind of thing that I'm trying to call out in the book is this, of course, is what you find over and over again. If you, if you look at religious experiences closely, they, they don't always, but they often lead to similar kinds of sexual or, or otherwise embarrassing details that are usually suppressed or censored by the religious traditions at some point. Um, but these kinds of details are not at all unusual. Um, and that's one of the things I do in the book, is I try to take things that Whitley's describing that seem outrageous or one-offs uh, in, our, in our kind of uh, secular culture, but in fact are extremely common in the history of uh, religions, if you know something about that broader history. And, uh, and that's essentially what I do in the book, is I try to normalize what looks uh, completely extraordinary or completely anecdotal. Uh, I try to show, in fact, it's not anecdotal at all. Uh, quite the contrary. And you introduce us, the, the lay people, to these tools that you have as a religious scholar to understand these various experiences. And so you use comparisons, phenomenology, like you said, uh, historical contextualization, which is an interesting notion that, from our point of view, we can say these experiences are so infrequent as to not even register, and then they become an anecdote. But then right. with your historical contextualization, you say, no, these happen in all different cultures, and they're really uh, similar. Therefore, there's something real going on here. Or there, Yeah, or there appears to be something real going on. Um, I mean, I think there's something real going on, but I don't know what it is. And uh, Whitley doesn't know either, by the way. Uh, and so that's the kind of both and that we want to sit with. We want to sit with this paradox that something real is going on, but it's not what's showing itself. What's showing itself is deceptive or a kind of camouflage or... Uh, at most, uh, more like a dream, um, but but there is, is something there, really there. Uh, there's something there in the environment that's somehow activating the human imagination and calling up all these extraordinary uh, visions and experiences that participate in the imagination of whatever culture and whatever person is being activated. But there's, there's, there appears to be something there in the environment that's doing this. Hmm. Um, so we're, at, we're essentially asking the reader to consider the fundamental, uncanny reality of such presences, but also being very suspicious of any cultural framing of them. It's a, it's a tough both hands. Uh, but we think that's the third way forward, uh, past both the literalisms of the of the belief systems, but also the the sort of debunkings of the conventional uh, scientific community. Yeah, well, so like one maybe part of the necessity of this both hand language has to do with the idea of the human as two. Could you explain that a little bit? Sure, sure. So. You know, I think one. I think people make a lot of mistakes, a lot of basic mistakes, when they think about these extreme experiences. And one of 
the 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 easiest and I think most fundamental mistakes people make is that we assume that a human being is just one thing or has just one identity. Uh, and we assume that that identity is the social ego. In other words, it's Doug or it's Jeff. And that Doug or Jeff can explain and encompass all that is and is active in this organism that Doug or, or Jeff identifies with. But in fact, or in seeming fact, there's a whole field of consciousness or mind that extends well beyond what Jeff or Doug have access to. And in fact, most of our functioning is unconscious in a, in a kind of simple psychological or cognitive sense. But that, that unconscious mind also appears to extend into the environment and can result in all sorts of extraordinary paranormal cognitions or out-of-body experiences or, or what have you. Um, and so once, once you just understand that the human is two, and by that I don't mean we're just two either, I mean that there are levels of mind and, and awareness that are, are, are coextensive with our ego but are not identical to our ego. Once, once you posit that, then suddenly all of these things um, begin to make a lot more sense and look like communications from that other form of mind or, or, or being that might, at the end of the day, in fact, be human, but, but not human in, in the sense we think about it. In other words, the alien might be the other of human nature. It might be our other side. It might be us uh, abducting us. Um, and I know that sounds strange, but that's kind of where we're led in the book. Yeah, and you speak about a two-way mirror and this kind of... It, it gets into what you explored in the in mutants and mystics a bit with with us writing ourselves as we're reading or you know this this right. conversation that we're having with ourselves that we don't even we're not even aware of right the the, the two way mirror is my metaphor in the book for the imagination and the way it mediates this alien self. Um, that, you know, we're, we're standing behind a two-way mirror and we're looking, we're actually looking into a mirror usually. And, and what we're really seeing in a vision or a dream is ourself. Uh, and, but we don't know it's ourself because we're not aware that it's a mirror. But occasionally on these rare moments, we sort of flip over to the other side of the two-way mirror. We can see right through it. And we can see right into the other room and we can see these strange things. Um, that that are also us, but but we've never seen them before. Um, now, having said all that, Doug, we also want to leave open the door to the possibility that what people are interacting with is not some other aspect of themselves or the human, but some other species, some other presence in the environment that has its own agency and has its own um, intentionality. In other words, there might actually be something there that's not us. But when it interacts with a human being, it inevitably gets coded in the, in the forms and, 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 and um, appearances that that human being can understand. Um, and so this is where you get all the folklore around, around these things. Yeah. What... But listen, I, I'm so aware that everything I say sounds completely paradoxical and self-contradictory, but that 
that's actually where I think we're led. Um, the, the more we look at this stuff, we're led to these paradoxes and to these loopy kind of ways of thinking. But so the interesting place that you're led is to the to the imagination leads to the imaginal or the the imaginal, which is. Uh, this idea of metamorphosis, you know, the final stages of something that's the butterfly on the other side. And so I wonder, I mean, so one of the things you invoke often is like the X-Men. And, you, you know, in the book you're talking about, you know, someone seeing something that reminds you of Nightcrawler. You know, these extraordinary right. mutant <laughs> superpowers. And right. and so it's it's such an interesting thought. I wonder, you know, like the same thought is in the book Childhood's End, where the indigo children, you know, leave the earth in, into the next phase of their being. I wonder, you know, where I'm going. I just wonder. And, and so we're, it seems as a culture, we're definitely kind of obsessed with the idea of the, you know, this X factor, this X Well, file. I think we are, yeah. We are obsessed with it. The the X then, of course, is a mythology, and uh, Childhood's End was a, a science fiction novel by Arthur C. Clarke. So we don't we want to be careful about literalizing them as well. But uh, both of those those very popular cultural expressions, I think, are expressions of this this desire in our culture to essentially tell a better story. Um, you know, the story that the Western culture lived with for thousands of years was essentially the, the Christian um, biblical story of creation and Adam and Eve. And, you know, it extended a few thousand years back and, and, and we were at the center of things. And, you know, it was pretty cozy. And that worldview and that story has just been essentially abolished over the last 200 years, and we're still reeling from it. We're still suffering from the loss of that story. And, of course, not all of us have accepted the loss of that story. A lot of people fight back vehemently. Um, and I think the, the, the X-Men and, and science fiction and a lot of the, the abduction accounts are essentially little gestures towards a new story. They're, they're symptoms of, of a culture shedding one story and trying to tell another. And I think it's going to take actually a long time um, for us to, to come to a, another story. So I think we're kind of in the middle of that. And one of the things we try to do in the book is warn the reader away from some of the dangers of these new stories that are appearing that essentially treat, always treat the alien or the, the other as, as a kind of invading demon that needs to be fought off or, or protected against. And of course you see that everywhere in Hollywood yeah, um, with the, the extraterrestrial invasion motif, which I think is very dangerous actually. And I, I don't mean dangerous in any kind of paranoid way. I just mean, I think if you look at these abduction accounts carefully, they're, they're often they're not even about abduction. They're about some transformative contact or encounter that's deeply positive. And I think um, the kind of phobic way they get framed as abductions or invasions 
um, is dangerous, frankly. And um, and so we're we're just trying to give a um, a more balanced account of what people are actually reporting, um, and not demonize them, um, but also recognize that many people have very negative experiences around these things too. There is a a negative quality to, to many of them. We don't want to deny that either, but we want to we want to take the whole thing in and just and just ask ask for better better stories. It seems like if I were to say what is our culture's main ideology, materialism definitely is kind of our bedrock, it seems to me. I wonder if part of this is moving beyond the literal. For whatever reason, science has definitely made us into something that is really literal as far as what we think of as real. Do you think that's also, I mean, part of changing stories is also changing lenses? Well, absolutely. I mean, this is what John Mack thought, you know, uh, the, this, the Harvard psychiatrist who, who worked with abductees. He, he felt that this was the ultimate intention of these experiences, um, that they were aimed at, at destabilizing or undermining our materialism and mechanism that really define at least secular culture. And this is exactly what Carl Jung thought too. You know, Jung wrote a, a really lovely book at the end of his life called just called Flying Saucers, a modern myth of things seen in the sky. And he essentially made the same argument that he had he couldn't figure out what these these darn things were, but they showed every sign of wanting to undermine the kind of simplistic materialisms and mechanisms of the of the modern world. And um, I think that's that's basically correct. I think that's I think that's in the right direction. But again, this that's a warning against the extraterrestrial invasion motif that you get out of Hollywood, because you know everything gets turned into a machine that is coming from the sky. Where again, if you look at these accounts, okay, people sometimes see machines, but they they also see balls of plasma or presences of light or they're invaded by a loving presence or they're transformed by some invisible being in the bedroom. These aren't about kicking the tires of some ship coming out of the sky. So again, the, I think the materialism of our culture leads to the machine, the invading machine because of the cold war context in which the myth was developed at first. Hmm. But but I gosh I hope we're beyond that I hope we can move beyond that now. Well, part of this moving beyond, I'm wondering. I mean, and you you introduce introduce this with the title of the book, the supernatural. Two words. Yeah. It, well, three the three words, right? Yeah. Uh, so we don't confuse the listener. <laughs> uh, the supernatural. Three words. That the natural is super. It's that we're limiting right. ourselves. Science, right. on some level, limits what what it, we just eliminate anything beyond the ordinary experience as uh, anecdotal. But I'm curious. So, like, that's a problem we have on the show. I don't know the the terminology. How do you, you know? Oftentimes, it's the esoteric, it's the occult, the paranormal, and then you even say in the book, paranormal was introduced at a really specific time and it was really carefully chosen, but that the the word doesn't function the way that it was originally intended? 
Right. Well, none of these words are. I mean, we, as, as I like to say in my own field, we, uh, all, the study of religion, all of our words are abused words. They've, they've all they've all left their original intentions, some of which were quite sophisticated, and they've they've fallen into all kinds of abuse and and, and misuse. So the paranormal is a, a perfect example. The 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 paranormal was a French term coined around 1900, uh, and uh, according to my, my colleague Renaud Evrard, who's a, a clinical psychologist there in France, they chose paranormal because the word for, um, well, they, they, want, they, they wanted to call them something like anomalous, but the word for anomalous in French is anormal, and it's indistinguishable from what we would call abnormal. So they couldn't use anormal, so they they invented this new word paranormal. And and essentially what they meant by it was some kind of extraordinary event, like a poltergeist event or, or a telepathic event that certainly was beyond para our our normal models or scientific understanding, but was not supernatural. It was it was part of the the world we live in. And eventually, we might be able to understand it with new, with new models. So they were trying to get away from the earlier supernatural framework. Um, but of course, what happened was over a century and a century and two decades now, the paranormal floated around and got associated with essentially the tabloids and then with horror movies. And now it's back to the supernatural. So we we lost all that early sophistication, uh, and and um, but we could easily get it back if we were just if we just used it more carefully. Um, the same thing with a word like telepathy. Mm-hmm. Uh, telepathy was coined by a uh, a teacher of Latin and Greek at Cambridge University, and it means pathos at a distance or suffering at a distance, and what. Myers, Frederick Myers is trying to get at is that if you look at telepathic events, they're not random. Uh, you don't generally get a telepathic event to read the stock market or, or bet on a basketball game. You, <clears throat> you see a telepathic event when somebody's in grave danger or suffering or dying. And it's all about emotionally entangled human beings. Telepathic events tend to spike between loved ones when one of the loved ones is in grave danger or, or dying. So that changes everything. You know, that, that's real insight. That's a, that's a very serious kind of model of, of a psychical capacity. Um, but again, then the word psychic just, just lost over. He, he, did, he coined that, by the way, in 1882. But then something like psychic just gets lost in the 20th century and, now it's associated with, with charlatans and and, and um, fraud. Another word you deconstruct is hermeneutics. Right. And so for me, that word has always been really academic, but I guess I never considered its root. Well, it is a very academic word, isn't it? It's where it's a it's a fancy academic word for interpretation. But, right. But what but but what scholars mean by it is something very specific. It comes comes from the Greek god Hermes. Uh, it means Hermes process, and it refers to the ways that 
that when one interprets something, one is, is always embedded or entangled with it, that which one is interpreting. So the, the, so a hermeneutical act is never one of, of objective um, uh, analysis, like me looking at a chair over there. It's, it's always a person interpreting a text and, and the text changing its meanings through the engagement of the interpreter. It's, it's this very participatory nature or insight into how interpretation works. And that's so important with paranormal phenomena because virtually all paranormal phenomena are hermeneutical in that sense. They, they're co-created by the person having them. They're not objective. They don't work like chairs or objects. Um, they work like Hermes, this, this trickster god uh, of ancient Greece, who was always leaving signs or coincidences for, for, for individuals, but also tricking them, by the way. Her- Hermes was also a, a, a thief uh, who qu- couldn't quite be trusted. So those are, <laughs> those are tough lessons. Uh, and of course, paranormal phenomena are often trickster-like. They often evade any clear analysis and, and work through camouflage or, or, or predation. Um, Which is an interesting warning for synchronicity junkies because there is something, you are being led somehow by yourself to what you need, but at the same time, you know, we're talking about car crashes often, you know, waking up experiences where they have to shake you to your core I think you, in your uh, field, you have a terminology called saying again. Could you explain that, maybe? Well, so that that's the name of one of the chapters in, in our book. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Greek phrase is apophasis, saying away. And apophasis is, a, is, a, is an ancient term for a kind of mystical literature in, that says away or deconstructs everything that people assume about God or the divine. So anything one can say about the divine, uh, apophatic literature says it away or denies it. Um, and and so the, the chapter on saying again is really, again, a call to to tell a different kind of story. To After we've deconstructed what we thought something was, we have to put it back together again. We have to say again what what it is we think it is or what's going on. Human beings can't live without story. They need a story. And so we don't have an option of living life without a story, but we do have an option of which story we live in. And uh, what saying again is about is, is, is just telling a better story one that's more more faithful to our actual experience in the world, and one that's more faithful, frankly, to what we know about that world through science. And, uh, you know, synchronicities are, I think, actually quite relevant here, because they're, in my, in my reading of them, they're essentially little calls or goads to, to a person, usually, to, to tell a different story. Um, their, their signs to live a different way or to follow this thread instead of that thread. Um, but I think you do have to be careful with them um, because as I think most people who look at synchronicities long enough realize is some of them are 
not true synchronicities. They, there are just coincidences in life. And some of them might be negative or, or trickster-like. Um, and I guess when I think of synchronicities, and I think of them a lot, I, the first thing I realized is for synchronicity to be a synchronicity, I have to choose to engage it as such. I, I can choose to ignore it, and it just goes away. It's forgotten. But if I focus on it, it becomes bigger usually, and it might evoke other synchronicities then. So my very choice to participate in the synchronicity ends up producing more synchronicities. Uh, and that's what we mean by hermeneutical. The, the choice to interpret something, to enter into it, actually influences how it behaves. Um, and again, I think that's one of the keys here to understanding all of this stuff is that we're part of the phenomenon itself. We're the key, actually, we're probably the key part. Well, we're almost out of time. I'm curious, as we mentioned, that your books tend to grow out of each other. Do we know, and you keep mentioning how part of our quest is to tell a better story. What What's the next story you're going to engage? <laughs> Well, yeah, so I, I'm always working on something. I, I'm actually, I want to focus on this better story. I, uh, I'm in my mid-50s now, and I figure if all goes well, I have a couple decades of productive work left in me. So I, I want to write a trilogy, actually, on the, the big, big story that I think is emerging from all of these little stories, and, uh, and, and I want to write that that trilogy over the next 15 or 20 years. Uh, and I don't know quite what it'll look like yet, but, but I, that's what I want to do. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. Great. Thanks, Doug. You bet. You've been listening to Dr. Jeffrey Kripal in 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. Be sure and check out his books and his website at kripal.rice.edu. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be, for, please be sure to visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as monthly online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much, and instead of shunning the darkness, we can face straight into it with an open mind. When we do that, the unknown changes. Fearful things become understandable, and a truth is suggested. The enigmatic presence of the human mind winks back from the dark. Mama gotta look at you and got a little worried Papa gotta look at you and got a little worried The pastor gotta look and said, y'all better hurry Send her off to a little Bible college in Missouri And now you come back saying you know a little bit about Every little thing they ever hoped you'd never figure out Eve ate the apple cause the apple was sweet Kinda God would ever keep a girl from getting what she needs And I'm getting ready to get down Getting ready to get down Getting ready to get down Now people 
across the street when you walk in their direction Talk between the teeth and throw an epithets And the doctor thinks the devil must have got you by your senses But to live the way you please doesn't sound like possession It's four long years studying the Bible Infidels, Jezebel, Salomas and Delilahs Back off the bus in your own hometown So you didn't like but then you probably won't like me now But I, I'm getting ready to get down I'm getting ready to get down I'm getting ready to get down all the men of the country club, the ladies of the Zilla are talking about love Like it's sapphire and liberty to really be a saint You gotta really be a virgin, dry as a page of the King James Version No la las, no hell yes, no I can't wait So gotta see you again, says turn the other cheek Take no chances, Jesus hates your high school dances Off to Bible school, you learned a little more than they had heard was in the golden rule. Be good to everybody, be a strength to the weak, be a joy to the joyful, be the laughter and the grief, and give your love freely to whoever that you please. Don't let nobody tell you about the who you ought to be. And when you get damned in the popular opinion, it's just another damn of the damn you're not giving. I'm getting ready to get down, getting ready to get down, getting ready to get down. Mama gotta look at you and got a little worried Papa gotta look at you and got a little worried The pastor gotta look and said y'all better hurry Send her off to a little Bible college in Missouri And now you're coming back saying you know a little bit about Every little thing they ever hoped you'd never figure out The bread, see the dead, see the sermon on the mound If you wanna see a miracle, watch me get down now Getting ready to get down Getting ready to get down Getting ready to get down Get down, getting ready to get down, getting ready to get down.